Yes, thank you very much for your interest uh, and in coming tonight. Oh, by the way, let me ask ahead of time, how, how long do you want me to speak to you? <laughs> 35 minutes, okay. Um, yes, of course. Uh, yes, so if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have disagreements, just blurt them out. Uh, so we can go back and forth. I would like, um, I was thinking, you know, uh, this morning I told you that I was not sure yet which pictures I will show you. So I have decided um, to start with a question and then I will tell you which pictures I'm going to show you. Um, we were together with some guys on Friday and on Saturday morning and we talked about different pictures, different metaphors the New Testament is using to describe our relationship with God. So let me give you an example. In the New Testament, we are called the sheep. Jesus is called the shepherd. And that symbolism um, portrays at the one hand in John chapter 10 that the good shepherd is taking care of us. We are in need of him. He gave his life for us that we might be rescued. And a little bit later in that chapter, he does, the good shepherd is described as the guy with the strong arms who keeps the sheep close to himself. There is other wonderful metaphors. For instance, we are his beloved children. We are his sons. He is the heavenly father. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Um, which other metaphors come to your mind? Hmm? Sons and daughters, yes. Um, yeah, we are stones in the temple, yeah, and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, so he is the vine, we are the branches, which means we are connected to him as the life source, yes. Oh, that's also very interesting. He is the head, we are the body. There is actually a very similar idea. First of all, the head gives the direction, but also the head is the life-giving part in the ancient understanding. Very good. The body needs the head. Without the head, the body is dead. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yeah, brothers and sisters. Yeah, co-workers, yeah, co-soldiers. Um, okay, well, let me not ask another interesting question. Which metaphor do you think is the predominantly used one in the New Testament? There is one metaphor that describes the relationship between God and us more than all the others combined. So let me say, if you take every instance where there's a metaphor described, bridegroom, bride, stones, uh, uh, branches, whatever, you combine them all, and then you look at them, more than half is reserved for one very specific metaphor. And I should give out a big prize for anybody who guesses what it is. <laughs> um, how about come home for weekend and stay with us in Dresden? <laughs> okay. What? No, it's not the sheep. Not the sheep shepherd metaphor. It's not the father and the son. It's going to be a surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's something that you're not going to like. <laughs> hmm? 
Yes, it is. Welcome to Dresden. <laughs> it is the metaphor of a slave to a master. More than 50% with all the metaphors in the Bible that describes the relationship of us towards Jesus or the Father is we are the slaves and he is a master. I told you, you wouldn't like it. And anyway, <laughs> but there's going to be some very interesting, there's going to be some very interesting aspects in it. And so I chose um, to show you some slides that have to do with slaves. So um, uh, when, we, when we look um, at the Greco-Roman Empire, we have to remember that the Greco-Roman Empire is a social class society, which means you are born in, into a class that will determine your station in life for the rest of your life. Um, so uh, Greco-Roman Empire has a strong socioeconomic and prestige status consciousness in an honor and shame society, and from top to bottom, these are one of your classes you're born into. There are senators, knights, um, free people, either citizens or non-citizens um, of a certain city. There is liberty, which means there are freed persons, and then there are slaves. Um, depending on the city you own, about 20 to 50% of the population will be slaves. So about, just you know, make your math, uh, at least a third of you in an average Greco-Roman society would be slaves. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, okay, so let's continue. Um, here, here of course, okay, so I want you, when, we, when we're going to look at some pictures from the ancient world, I want you to guess by the representation of how the people are presented, which class they come from. Which class do you think this person come from? By the way, his name is Marcus Holconius Rufus. Marcus, okay, so where does it come from? Knight. Yeah, he's almost a knight. How, how, why do you think it's a knight? Uh, the, the, the armor, yeah, he has armor, so he show, shows off military. Yeah? He's actually a little bit more than the knight. He's a senator. He's even one station above the knight. And how do we see it? Hmm? Yeah, so he is a ruler, yeah. As a, a, not, a, not a ruler necessary, but he is part of the senatorial class, so he will have certain offices, certain offices of power, yeah. But how, how do you know? Why, why is this not a slave? The robes, yeah, um, he has a toga, indeed, he has a toga uh, sort of just wrapped around, and a toga is uh, uh, only free persons can, can carry the toga, so slaves is included. And one more thing. The haircut. <laughs> the haircut. <laughs> it's not the haircut. It's not the... It's the posture, it's the way my wife tells me how I'm supposed to stand. She's a physical therapist, she says, don't go crouched like this all the time. You know, put your chest out and stand upright. That is, you know, when you see somebody like that, you never get the idea, this is a slave. This is somebody who has self-confidence in the kind of status that he has. We will see in a minute. Okay, um, let's continue. Uh, this name is Marcus Nonius Balbus. Um, this is also a very important person, um, uh, and maybe we show the next picture. This is his son, so we have senior and junior, and they are next to each other. Just keep that for a while, because I know this looks like just oh, it's just a guy on a horse, but this this guy, those two guys on a horse speak volumes, speak volumes 
about New Testament. Do you see how the Father is betrayed, portrayed, and you see how the Son is portrayed? It's almost the same, only that the one guy is a little bit younger looking than the others. That is because you are very class conscious in the first century, and there is an obligation. Of course, you are privileged to, you know, the guy on the right, uh, Marcus Balbus Jr., he will be very privileged one day to inherit the wealth and the prestige and the status of his father. But there is also an obligation of the son. What is the obligation of the son? You, you, can, you can see that on the picture. To be like the father, to uphold the honor of the family name. So, as, as a son born into, the, born into a rich family, um, you can't just, you know, do whatever you like. You have a social prestige obligation. You have an obligation to uphold the worth and the honor of, the, of your family. And how important your honor is in, in the first century, I uh, illustrate to you in the next picture. This is a door. I mean, look at me, well, yeah, okay. When you actually stand at the door, you see that small door in the back. That small door in the back is about three meters, six feet high. That's just, that's not original. That is 21st century. That is just put there so people don't climb over. So how high is this big door? Oh, by, oh, by the way, this is just, this is a living quarter of a famous and wealthy family in Pompeii. Why in all the world do they have to have an entrance door that's about 10 meters high? Now they're <laughs> actually they were average height, <laughs> but thank you very much for the funny contribution. Why do you think? Uh, uh, why do you think it is? So, so you will not come to Dresden. <laughs> so, why do you think that is? Why do I have to have a huge door like that? Yeah, to show off prestige. You know, whoever walks down the alley is supposed to know immediately. There's not just this little itty bitty tiny family living here. You show who you are. You show the dominance, the prominence, and your prestige and honor right at the door. Okay, well, what does that, does that, what does that have to do with the first century? And what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, I'm, maybe do you remember the son of the generous father who went to the father and said, give me my inheritance? And the father paid him half of the inheritance, what did the son do? Squander it. Where are, where are the sympathies of the heroes in the first century? Are they going, oh, the poor son, you know, the father, he probably didn't treat him well, so he had some psychological misfortune and therefore he had to take the money and show off. Poor son. The sympathies are with the father. What that son did is such a crime, is such a dishonor against the name and the noblesse of the family that the sympathies of the people are immediately with the father. And then Jesus tells the story and goes, there's a son who comes to the father and says, give me part of my inheritance. I'm going to go with it and squander it. Everybody is outraged and says, you know what the father should do? He should disinherit him. And in fact, in the first century, there's a thing called patria potestas, which means the father has full rights over the son. 
which means if you live in the family, the father has full rights to do with the son however he pleases. He can sell him into slavery. He can even execute him. There will be no trial of the father when he executes his son. So I don't know if the people were loud clamoring for execution, but they were clamoring to the father and saying, do something with that wicked son. We have never seen something like that, that somebody takes your great honor because the man is obviously a wealthy man who gives him half the inheritance. Uh, takes the famous family honor. So in, in, in the transferal is takes the glory of God and squanders it and treats it with such a disrespect. And then when the son returns and comes back to the father and says, Father, I have sinned. And the father embraces him grace. The sweet grace of the Father comes out like never before. Alright. So isn't that interesting? That, that's how the kind of, that's how the kind of things where you look in the first century, you discover some things and you when you just go there, it's just rocks. But when you then realize where the rock lies and why it lies the way it is, it tells an interesting story. Okay. Let's continue. Okay. So here we have another um, scene uh, from a banquet in the first century. Um, some free people feasting, celebrating, and there is one slave in the picture. And I want to ask you, one of you two boys, uh, look at the pictures, at the picture, and see if you can find the slave for me. Where is the slave? On the right. On the right, that's right. This is the slave right here. You see it? Okay. Why is that the slave? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not eating anything there, you know, wonderful, perfect. He is serving, so put pouring out some water or some wine. And then there's some, very good. Welcome to Dresden. Bring, bring, <laughs> bring your parents, please. <laughs> um, and there's another, there's another uh, very interesting uh, thing why this is definitely a slave. Uh, it's not, the f not necessarily face. Hmm? The posture, of course, the posture, like this, you know, I mean, he can, can, you know, somebody from the union should talk to him and say, you know, <laughs> don't go like this, you know, like safety on the workplace, poor like this, you know. <laughs> no, you know, that's the posture of a slave. It's uh, specifically portrayed like this to say serving, uh, body bent. And one more important thing. Uh, we'll take you, yes. The clothes are very different. Yes, he just has a he has, has a very simple tunica. Um, yeah, but um, it's definitely different from the clothes the other people were. And one thing, one other thing. But by the way, if you it's it's an indication, but it's not a hard indication because you can see also free people who have also just have a tunica like that. But on this picture, yes, smaller? it's smaller. It's smaller, and you know what? That guy in real life. This might be a Briton, you know, uh, imported there, and he might be in reality a head or a head and a half taller than all the other guys in the scene. It's portrayed smaller to show the difference in the social class. Well, I, will, I will show you in a minute that slaves are almost always, there are some exceptions, uh, portrayed in pictures or engravings very small, they almost look like children, but there are no children, they are adults, they are grown-ups. They are two meter high Germans, you know, imported. But they are portrayed small to show immediately low social class, 
low size. Somebody who has high social class is portrayed big. Okay. Um, here we see the same one. Maybe if you're sitting far away, so you can hard you can hardly see. But this isn't this is an altar where somebody is worshiping. And here again, do you see this one? This guy over here. He's a slave with utensils. Okay, um, I will say something about that. Something about that in a minute. Oh, look at this one. You can hardly even see the whole person there. There is a lady of high social standing. She is portrayed of such an high esteem. She's so big in the social ladder that you can only see, you know, her her lower body. And the slave, who again is probably an adult, is just in absolutely miniature. So it speaks right from the beginning. There's a stigma, of course, there's a huge stigma of being a slave. And that's going to be important for a second. There, there's one again. I'll show you that it's, uh, I, I'll show you the different ones from different places um, to show you it's all over the empire. The previous one was in Pompeii in Italy. Here we have one from Sofia in Bulgaria. Um, you can also see the free person sitting at a funeral steel. And at the bottom, right here, is the slave right there okay okay this is from germany um it's a it's a gravestone you can also see in the middle is the free person and two slaves one on the left he has a writing utensil so he's probably a secretary on the right hand there is some guy i don't know if you see it from afar he's carrying his shoes there's a shoe right here so this is his personal assistant his personal slave also again uh, in in small stature and here we have another one. And I show you this picture because I want to go on a little detour. Um, this, is, this is a typical scene of a uh, sacrifice and prayer of the first century. And notice what we see here on this gravestone. Um, we, of course, have the slave, again, a smaller statue. He is holding something, probably some offering of grain or oil or whatever. Here we have a flute player. And you should ask me in a second, why in the world are they playing the flute? And I will explain it to you. And here we have two people sacrificing. And there we have an altar. And then do you, did, do you see the, how this guy is dressed? What's so special about this guy? Can I he has a toga. The toga is sort of like a bed sheet, ancient bed sheet. <laughs> uh, sort of the, the Romans had a love-hate relationship to that thing. They loved it because it showed prestige and honor, and they hated it because it was very clumsy to wear. But what, what does the guy do with the toga? Huh? Uh, here, of course, here it's above the arm, but a little bit more up. It's over the head. He takes the thing over the head. My goodness, you know, like the archaeologist goes to, the, goes to this place. The number of first question he asks, well, is, is it cold or what? You know, uh, well, may, maybe not because the other guys are not doing it. Why in all the world does he put the toga over his head? And you will never imagine it has something to do with the New Testament. It has something to do with what Jesus said. It will open up in a minute and give you a clue to a story you all know and where you're all puzzled why it is the way it is. And the answer lies in the flute player and the guy who puts up the toga over his head. Can you believe it? Okay, well, I'll explain to you in a second. Um, <laughs> this is 
The same guy as you saw in the previous picture. <laughs> or actually a modern guy doing the same thing, but I didn't have a toga with me, so I just took my mantle um, at the museum at uh, Vera Lamium yesterday, and I'm sacrificing. I'm doing a proper first century sacrifice and prayer for you guys. Aren't you glad I did that yesterday for you? <laughs> and um, me too. I'm putting my so-called toga over my head. I did that for a reason. I'll tell you in a second why that is. Because this is, this is, the, this is the, uh, uh, the scripture we're talking about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. Or actually, it, the, the text says, do not use many words as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the thing that you have need of before you ask him. And then it says, in this manner, therefore pray. Well, this is actually a very difficult scripture. Why is that difficult? Because the text actually says, don't pray many words. So the conclusion the Christian draws is only short prayers allowed, please. Is that so? Are the short prayers the best prayers? Well... Obviously not, because we have another scripture that says this. Jesus told them in parables so that they should always pray and not give up. And then he says, there was a certain church in the city, and there was a lady who needed justice. And the lady, she continuously knocked at the judge's door and said, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And then the judge said, oh, this woman, she unnerves me. And so she finally said, okay, I'll give in. And one of the you know, important things from the, from the parable, among other things, is don't give up. Don't give up. Keep on praying. And so the Christian has to decide which is his favorite scripture. Is it Matthew 7 or Luke 18? Short prayer or long prayer? You know, pray once and then leave it? Or continue to pray until you have the answer? <laughs> or maybe many short prayers. Well, very interestingly, the answer lies on the guy who, who, has, who, who puts the toga on his head. Because, listen, he says, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do. So, very interestingly, we should do the following thing. We should, they, we should ask the questions, well, how are the heathens are praying? Well, first of all, it's a very interesting fact that the heathens are praying. Because all the heathens that you know are probably not praying. You know? But in the first century, the heathens are praying. Just a little different than the heathens are praying today. So, how are the non-believers, how are the heathens praying in the first century? And um, I, have, I have a, I brought to you a almost full description of a prayer from the first century. Um, yeah, it looks a little long. That's precisely it. So, how about we look at the translation and see what the, how the heathens ha are, are praying? I have it for you, for you right here. This is the text, what the text says. Offering of Augustus and Agrippa for Apollo and Diana with the following prayer. Apollo, as it is written in the ancient books, and for which reason it will be turned for the benefit of the citizens of the Roman people, an offering of three times nine offering cakes should be devoted to you. I pray and plead with you, and then it just continues and says the same words as above. That means three times nine offering cakes were given and each time an offering cake was given, which is 18 times, the guy had to pray those words. And exactly those words. And then the prayer continues, 
Apollo, as we pleaded with you with the, present, with, the, with the presented offering cakes and as we interceded godly prayers, so be satisfied with these presented offerings and be well disposed towards us. The same prayer with the chose cakes, whatever they are. And then it just says, with the same prayers for Diana. So whatever they went through with those 18 cakes, they go again through with the 18 cakes of that for Diana. All right. After the offering, 27 youth chosen because of their parents are still alive and the same number of girls sang the festival song in the same way on the capital. The song was composed by Quintus Horatius Flaccus, isn't that interesting to know the guy? Of the collegium, 15 men were present, the Imperator Caesar, Marcus Agrippa, Quintus Lepidus, Potitius Messala, and I left for you the other 12 out because that's of no interest to you. The 15 men for the provision of the offering give notice after the conclusion of the main festival, we open seven days of games of honor. On June 5th, Latin presentation at the Wooden Theater at the, Tybo at the second hour, Greek musical plays in the theater of Pompeii at the third hour, and Greek dramatic presentations at the theater of the Circus Flamius at the, and we don't know the hour because the manuscript breaks off. Uh, uh, somebody can probably preach three hours just on that wonderful text because it shows something very interesting and we not go there. Um, but because I just realized we don't have the time and then I go somewhere and then, you know. Here somebody has, is giving a visual presentation of what an offering in the first century looks like. And again, we have a curious fact that we have a flute player again. We have somebody, some slave with the offering box and these guys again put their, their toga over their head. Same here, doesn't matter where you go. Big offering of Augustus has his toga over his head again. So we have it again from a different angle. And now I want to, I want to uh, uh, maybe we can go back to the text of Matthew chapter 7. I want to solve the riddle for you. Heard because of many prayers. The guy puts his toga over his head and there is a flute player and somebody holding the manuscript and the guy reads the exact prayer. The reason for that is this. In the first century, uh, actually, let's, let's, uh, 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 no, let's go forward a little bit because I let that inscription, that text of the inscription that I gave you, um, because I need to show you here. By the way, did you see Apollo as it is written in the ancient books, which means the pr you can't just pray any prayer. You can't just go there and say, okay, God, you know, I'll pray from the depths of my heart, do this or that for my family. Prayer in the first century means, and did you see always in the, when, you had, when you had the pictures, there was one guy who was holding a book, was holding something. You had to pray the way Apollo or Diana wanted to be addressed. You can't just pray any prayer. You had to pray exactly the prayer that the priests delivered and showed this is how she wants to be addressed. What happens if you make a mistake and you live out a the or an n? No, yes, Diana won't hear. She will only hear if you pray exactly the way she wants to be addressed. So imagine this guy with the 18 cakes he's offering, first for Apollo and then for Diana, and then on the last prayer, the last cake, he makes a grammatical mistake. We'll start from the beginning again. And that's the reason why the guy puts the, puts the toga over his head and the flute player plays because he wants to be undisturbed from outside influence, outside noise, and pray exactly the kind of prayer that's there because they know 
Only when you pray the prayer exactly the way it is there, then Diana will hear, or Apollo, or whoever. And now we come to a very interesting thing because it has nothing to do with the length of the prayer. But Jesus is showing that when we address the Father, and now I need the text again from, uh, from Matthew chapter 7, he wants a certain kind of prayer. The heathens are praying in such a way as thinking that long formulaic prayers will change the disposition of Apollo, Zeus, or Diana in a certain way. They think Zeus, Apollo, or Diana is angry, and there's only one way to change their mind, to, to pray a propitious prayer together with offering, and that will change the mind of Diana or Apollo or whatever, and then she will be well disposed for you. But here Jesus, what he's saying here is, these people think that because they do those things, Diana will change their mind in here, but God the Father is different because first of all, why in all the world is there the contrast with the Father? Because the Father cares. The Father doesn't need to be propitiated. When I come home to my children, I don't need them to do 20 things for me and 18 cakes. I come immediately, I see them, and I have an immediate goodwill, and I have immediate mercy towards them just because they are my children and the bible says i'm a bad father in comparison with the heavenly father so the idea here is not the the length of the prayer but the attitude and trust who do you think it is that you're praying for praying to are you praying with faith towards a god who has warm-hearted affections for you are you coming in your prayer time thinking, well, I have to pray half an hour because somehow I have to twist his arm and if I do one hour devotional time, then definitely I get what I want. Or do I come with the confidence and say, I know who you are. You have a certain nature, heavenly, almighty God in heaven. You are like a tender father, already well disposed towards me. There is a tender and gentle, soft heart Soft spot in your heart. Like I have a tender, soft heart, spot in my heart, and my daughter knows it very well. She, she just needs to look at me and say, Daddy, my heart melts, and I say, doesn't matter if it's a horse or two horses, whatever you want. <laughs> there is a soft spot in my heart, and there is a soft spot in the Father's heart. That soft spot is us trusting and believing in his goodness, coming to him with faith and saying, you are not like the heathen gods. It have to be, you know, their, their minds have to be changed and they have to be propitiated. I know who you are. You are a tender, loving father and you hear me and you love to hear me. And we have another indication in here because it says, for your father knows the things that you have need for. What do you think it means when somebody says, I know the things you need? Does it mean, does it only mean I have intellectual knowledge of the things that you mean, that you need? Let's make a little experiment. My wife, uh, as you have seen, is pregnant. And so she wants the home to be cozy and she wants the trash to be taken out at regular intervals. Um, <laughs> And so she, what she says to me is, Dirk, it's been two days since the trash was taken out. 
And then I answered to her and I said, I know. <laughs> if the next day the trash is still not carried out, taken out, I'm in trouble. Unjustly so. Because I only said I know. But she, she uses the no like in Matthew 7. I use the no in a different way. <laughs> I use the no just in, yeah, I know it's there, but I don't care. But the no here is not, I know it's there, but I don't care. The no here is, I know and I care. So the idea here is the Father in heaven knows means he knows and cares for the prayers and for the needs that we have. He is well disposed towards us. Isn't that interesting? So those are the things that you learn. Okay, okay let's continue. What, let's see what we have. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, besides, those other things are also interesting. Um, this is a view. I'm not so much interested in this building over here, but I'm interested in this building over here. And this building over here is the answer why in the New Testament slavery was not banished. Hmm, how is that? Uh, this is the same house again, just from a different perspective. And yes, I did climb over the fence to take that picture. And yes, I was almost thrown out of the archaeological site. <laughs> but I knew what was there and I couldn't leave without taking a picture. Um, this is the so-called Domus Vetiorum. It is one of the wealthiest homes in Pompeii. And it's very interesting, the owners are the brothers Aulus and Vetius, Aulus Vetius Restitutus and Aulus Vetius Conviva. From the name, we know the kind of social class they were in. Those are freed persons, which means formerly they had been slaves, they were set free by their masters. Isn't that interesting? And that's, this will surprise you. This will surprise you in the first century. You will meet free people who are beggarly poor. And you will meet freed people who are former slaves who are rich. Rich, rich, rich. And this is one of the instances of them. And did you, did you notice, um, very important to make sure, the difference between a free person and a freed person. A freed person, there's a huge gap in the social class between the free person. The free person has social dignity. The free person can do whatever it wants to. The freed person used to be a slave. And it's a bad thing to be a freed person, as they get ridiculed all the time because they were slaves. Well, now, this is very interesting with this one, because this house, it contains uh, a room with erotic pictures and graffiti at the entrance. And when you read and translate the graffiti, it advertises that in the room is the home of the slave Eutychus available for two asses. For what? Prostitution. So, two former slaves own a slave. And it's very common in the first century. Two slaves who had been freed bought themselves a slave to make a profit. That says something about the condition in the first century. That says something that even though people who had formerly been slaves didn't have an interest into abolishing slavery. 
Did you, did you realize that? You know, we expect from our present day perspective, oh, they should be grateful. You know, they should be grateful they've been released from slavery. The last thing that comes to our mind is that these two people who should be grateful to be released from slavery buy their own slave. So it speaks volumes and it shows that in the first century, it just didn't enter their mind. It just didn't even come across. It was not a social agenda, nowhere. The idea that one should not have a slave didn't even come up. And so it's very difficult to, to look angrily at the Christians and say, well, why didn't you speak out? Well, nobody spoke out. Everybody was quiet. Why aren't we accusing the heathens that they didn't cry out and do something against it? And by the way, it is very interesting, and it is interesting on the, on the social conditions and on the credit of Judaism and Christianity when you look at the treatment of the slaves. In no other culture but in the Judea-Christian culture were slaves considered human beings with equal rights to every person. Every other nation and every other people made laws and distinguished in the laws what kind of social status you were. To give you an example, there is Egyptian laws. And in the Egyptian law code, if a ruler steals, let's say, an amphora of wine, the ruler has to give the amphora back. If the slave steals an amphora of wine, he will be crucified. There is different laws according to your social status. And we know that from the, we know that from the first century. We know that Jesus as a capital punishment was crucified. If you were Roman citizens, you couldn't be crucified. You were sent into exile. So different laws apply to different kind of social class of the people, except in Judaism. In Judaism, every person was considered equal. And the rules that, that were, that applied for the free person also applied for the slave. So there are slaves in Judaism, but the slave in Judaism will, get, will have to get the Sabbath off. Will have the same rules for everybody. Uh, Sabbath for everybody. The same rules in when you do wrong or whether you do right apply equally to all people. Slaves are free. The slave could on, only be held in slavery for maximum seven years. Most of the time it was much less than that because the, the year of Jubilee would come up every seven years, and whenever the year of Jubilee was next, the slave had to be released. It was in your household. If the slave was hurt through the anger of the master, and the slave, let's say, lost a year or lost half, a year, half an year, the slave had to be compensated for the loss. Nowhere else you find that in any other culture. In every other culture, you could do with a slave as you please. If you want to crucify him, no one will even ask a question. You just send him to a professional crucifier and they will do it for you. Um, one more thing. Oh, when the slave was released, this is very interesting. When the slave was released in Judaism, the owner of the slave had to give a monetary allowance to the slave who is departing so that the slave can now live on his, by his own means, by eating, either following a craft or, or, or going into business or doing something so that he will not be enslaved again. Isn't that interesting? Where in the ancient world did that ever happen? So by the way, so those are the seeds of the Judeo-Christian culture that 
that later on, as the church history progresses, nurtured into it was the Christian who first and most vehemently pushed for the abolishing of slavery because they saw slaves as equals and as humans in, in, in the image of God. It's very interesting. And there is a distortion, a social distortion going on in our present day where people accuse Christians and say, well, the Christians 2,000 years ago, they had slaves. How unfair is that? You're bad Christians. Well, that's not, that's not entirely accurate picture. Everybody has slaves. And the Jewish people and the Christians were treating the slaves like no others. Uh, Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy um, in Ephesians, in, in, no, no, in Ephesians he, he writes to Ephesus, and he writes to the slaves and says, uh, he writes to the masters and says, Masters, treat your slaves with dignity and respect. Give them what is fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the idea is, Paul writes to the Christian and says, Treat your slave the way you want it to be treated by God. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Okay, so let's go for the next one. This is the, this is the, the island of Delos. Um, this is the largest slave shipping uh, no whole trading port in the ancient world. At Delos, up to 10,000 slaves were going through public auction a day. A day. 10,000 slaves a day. Next picture. Uh, just some impressions. Not much left. Um, here we see the Uh, this is the religious harbor. Next picture. Oh, this is very interesting. Um, let me ask a question to end. <laughs> um, I don't want to be mean and and, but um, have you ever baptized somebody? Have you ever baptized anybody in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yeah. Um, probably you like me for many years until I found this didn't even know what we were doing. Um, because nobody ever came up to us and asked us, what do you actually do when you baptize in the name of the Son and the Father of the Holy Spirit? You know, everybody thinks just like, well, the pastors will know what they're doing. They know what they're saying. But here comes some very interesting fact. When you look, when you look at the text, can you go for the next picture? When you look at the text, no, actually, do we have one more? Yeah, this one. Uh, when you look at the text, the text actually says this. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nation, nations, baptizing them. And then you have the word, not in the name, not the Greek word en, were my Greek experts over there. It says, look it up if you have your Greek Bible with you, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now it's even more difficult, and the pastors are even more in trouble. Because now the question comes up, what does it mean if you baptize somebody into the name of the Son, of the Father, and the Holy Spirit? Well, nobody knows unless you know a little bit about slavery. And let, let's, let's go back. And, we've, and I have you a description of papyri, which, uh, one more back, of papyri, which we found. And those papyri found in the sand of Egypt describe following. And here's somebody, Moulton and Milligan, um, is explaining it for us. It says the phrase, eis to onoma. Uh, so the, the phrase, in the name of somebody, so A's with onoma in the genitive is frequent in the papyri with reference to payments made to the count of one. Um, so the usage is of interest in connection with Matthew 28, 19, where the meaning would seem to be 
baptizing in the possession of the Father. So the idea is this. Into the name of somebody is technical language for the sales of slaves. So if Anne sells me a slave, I will write him a receipt. And I will write something like, I received into the name of Duke Mueller from and, you know, I don't know, a slave, and I will credit you 2,000 denarii. And when we read the document, when somebody reads the document, everybody knows immediately, oh, here's been a sale, a transaction of slavery happened. So when you baptize somebody into the name, the idea is you are symbolizing a transference of property. With the baptism, the person being baptized is being transferred into the ownership of the person that's named after the into. So baptism, one of the symbolisms of baptism is you acknowledging an ownership. You're acknowledging that God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are your owners, and you're the slave. That's one of the instances where I told you, huge metaphor in the New Testament, a slavery image. Have you ever thought of that baptism symbolizes that you have become a slave? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And it, by the way, it accords very well with the text because can we have the next text? Interestingly enough, already in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says to the disciples and says, Come to me, all your labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And the word take my yoke, when you take the yoke upon in the ancient days, means can, two, can mean two things apart from the literal uh, taking on a yoke you know, of an oxen or something like that. In a symbolic use, which it here is, is obviously because Jesus doesn't want us to walk around with yokes on the neck. In a symbolic use, it either you get married to somebody, you know, I'm under the yoke with Nadia. It's a heavy yoke. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> or it's a description for slavery of becoming a slave. Under the yoke means I am a slave. I have your proof right over here. In First Timothy verse 6, Paul writes all slaves and then he makes an apposition, which means let me explain to you another term I use for slaves. Those who are under the yoke. Oh, to be under the yoke means to be a slave. So when Jesus says, Come to me, all your weary and heavy laden. Our favorite scripture, yes, Jesus, I come to you. You take my burdens. Actually not realizing what Jesus is asking of you. He's asking of you, do you want to be my slave? And the idea is, I am a gentle slave master. I'm not somebody who whips you. I'm not somebody who extorts you know, the last drop of blood out of you. But I am a master who treats you kindly, gently, and with benefit for your own life. But if you want to belong to me, you have to be my slave. Don't want me as a master? Cannot have me at all. Hmm. Isn't it interesting? Okay, so, okay, can we go back? One more, no, uh, forward. <laughs> okay, wait a second. Look, because look at this. And then here it even, it even, it's even in the close immediate text. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey. Uh, one of the phrases that I invented is that one metaphor comes seldom alone. 
or maybe somebody else invented it and I forgot who it was and it just stuck to my mind. Um, so the idea is that usually when there's a metaphor put forward, it, it doesn't come alone, but there is a whole net of other metaphors that paint the whole picture. You are baptized into possession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are a slave. What do slaves do? They obey. They obey. Slaves obey. And slaves of Jesus Christ love to obey him. They love to obey him. Okay, next one. Uh, okay, I will hurry up. This is very interesting. Um, just for slaves, a, a, a slave from either Germany or England will cost about 500 to 600 denarii. Um, a year's, uh, a year's uh, a wage of a soldier which, who earns a little bit more than average is 225 denarii. So let's count with about, say, one, you get one denarii a day. Roughly, that's maybe almost double, but it's okay for. Our. So you have to multiply the 500 denarii with, let's say, 100 pounds a day. So right, so maybe average, a little bit more than average, 100 pounds a day. Well, what's the average in England? How much do you earn? 600 a week. Okay, so it's about 100 a day. 500 times 100 is 5,000. 5,000 pounds. So. A cheap slave, like a British slave. <laughs> uh, why, by the way, why are the British slaves so cheap? Oh, because they're useless. <laughs> <laughs> as are the Germans, as are the Germans, as are the Germans, I have to admit. Yeah, they can't do much, they can't do much. Oh, by the way, where do the, where do the, where do the most expensive slaves come from? Oh, you will like that. From Greece, of course. <laughs> From Greece, why? Why is that? Why are they? Why? Why are they? Why are they so expensive? No, 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 no. No, the good-looking ones, the good-looking ones are sitting next to you. The good-looking ones, really, the good-looking ones are the black ones. The black ones were bored for their good looks. Slaves from Africa were bored for the good looks. I'm sorry for your Britons, but because you were considered beautiful by the Greco-Romans, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, by the way, so let's come back to the Greeks. Why are the Greeks so expensive? Yes, they're clever. The Greeks are the most clever people in the ancient in the ancient times. <laughs> so, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do with the What do you do with the Greek slave? What do you do with the, What do you use him for? Secretaries. Yes, can can write. Teaching. If you are a noble family, if you want to give your son a good education, you get a Greek slave to educate him. Doctors. Greeks are the doctors. Yeah. All the high qualified professions are all from Greece. And then if you need somebody to shovel a trough or something like that, you get the British. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so if you want to buy a Greek, if you want to buy a Greek slave. You, you have to, at the average market price, 2,000 denaries, which is 20,000 euros. And that's average. You, you pay up to 100,000 euros for a good educated slave. So that also tells us something about that definitely and surely not every slave in the ancient world was badly mistreated every day of their life. 
most, yes, slaves were mistreated, no question about it. Um, but most slaves were treated with a certain respect and dignity, not because they were considered humans, they were considered tools, but because the tools cost so much. They were so expensive in getting them into the first place. Hmm. All right. Does it have to do anything with the New Testament? No. So let's continue. Uh, let's continue. Continue. Oh, this is interesting. Um, clothing of slaves. Um, uh, slaves were not allowed to wear a toga, as already said. Um, that was reserved for free people. Otherwise, all clothing could be possible. So if you walk on the street, um, the toga wasn't worn for everyday activities. It was only worn for festivals, going to the court or things like that. You meet a person, you don't know if he's a slave or is a free person. You don't, you don't see it. Um, but the slaves did have certain working clothes. The cer uh, for example, the slaves uh, clothes with the so-called exomis, which is a tunica with only one arm. You see it on this one. Maybe can we have the next one? Uh, we have this one right here. You see it more clearly. This is you clearly. Somebody said on the clothing over there. Uh, this definitely now is a slave because he wears a thing where only part of his shoulder is covered and the other one is free. Okay, can we go back, please? And here is something very interesting. Over on top of this tunica, slaves um, put so-called aprons uh, when they were household slaves. Not, of course depending on the profession, but when they were household slaves, they were put a so-called so encomboma. Is that the right word? Do you know that word? Encomboma? Never mind. We, had, we don't have, I'll ask you later. Which is the apron, and that very word we find in John chapter 13. Let me get John chapter 13, and let me read it to you. In John chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Jesus, having lo loved his own who were in the world, he loved them up to the uttermost, which means his love didn't stop short, but he loved you to the absolutely maximum. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that he should betray Jesus. Because Jesus knew that the Father... Oh, now, listen to this. Because Jesus knew that the Father handed all things over to him. So the idea is Jesus knew that he will receive supreme dignity, honor, and ruling power, knowing his status as the exalted Son of God. You think Jesus rose from the, from, the, from the table, looked at the disciples' eye and said, you don't know yet who I am. Worship me now. But no, this is not, not what happens. Jesus knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand, sovereign rule, this happens. And knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, meaning knowing that he possessed the very glory of God and was returning to that glory, he got up from the meal, received his outer clothes, took a tile, and towed the apron, and as that's the slave apron, that's exactly the very word that is used for a slave apron and only for a slave apron, around himself. He poured water into the wash basin 
and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel that he had wrapped around himself. And no wonder that Peter at that moment is saying to Jesus, you are not washing my feet because Jesus took on the posture and the clothing of a slave. The eternal Son of God, knowing his full glory that he possesses, consciously bows down at your feet and he serves you like the lowest of the ladder. He humbles himself and he serves you like a slave. Of course, symbolizing as the text continues, symbolizing of what he will do on the cross for you. He was the glorious son of man, but he bows down low for you to serve you as a slave. That is why the Gospel of John in John 3.16 says, And in this way God loved the world. He sent his only son to die for you, so that if you believe in him, you will receive eternal life and not perish. How much did Christ love you? Took on slave clothes. Took on slave clothes. And then we see, we see that, that the text in 13, in 13, 16, Jesus uh, says it. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. Um, no. Oh, 16, yeah. He, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and I have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you should do just I have done for you. I tell you the solemn truth. The slave is not greater than the master. The slave metaphor comes up because he himself had become a slave. All right. Okay. Maybe five more minutes and then we'll see. Let's see if there's something, anything other interesting in here. Let's continue. Okay. Oh, by the way, do you see the small guy again there? Serving. Oh yeah, we need to do this one. Then we need to do this one because this is actually where I wanted to go. This was I actually wanted to go here, and all the other things came to my mind as I was preparing and put them in. You see, that's how it happens. Remember, remember, I started. I started with the idea that the main, the most prominently used metaphor in the first century for your relationship with God the Father is you are the slave and He is the master. And now here is some something very interesting. Um, uh, who of you would like to be a slave? Who of you in the first century would like to be a slave? Hmm? It, well, thank you very much. That's already th the answer of the whole thing. Let's forget the answer for a second. <laughs> you see, I need an hour to say it, and you could, you could have just blurted it out at the beginning, and we would have been finished and gone home a long time ago. But the, this, is the, this is the interesting fact. And I want to show you with the next one. Remember the smallness. Slave, in, slave communicates something in the ancient world. Let's continue the next one. I, have, I brought you a quote from the first century. Euripides says, There is only one thing which gives slaves shame and dishonor. It is the name slave itself. So Euripides is sarcastic here and he says, A slave. <laughs> the guy is dishonored from the outset, nothing he can do to gain respect or honor, whatever. He's a slave. The very fact that he's a slave will always say he's a dishonored, despised guy from the street. Nobody cares about him. 
and that in a social conscious class. Where, do you remember? Where everybody is honor driven. That's why I continued reading. I don't know if you remember that, that long prayer about I'll give to Diana those 15 cakes and to, to Apollo those other 15 cakes. And then I read to you that those who contributed the cakes give huge festivals. And everybody of you was thinking, it's like, why in the world is he reading it to us? It has nothing to do with anything. Yes, it has. It has to do with honor. These guys who provided the cakes put on the inscription after they did the prayer, oh, and by the way, we are financing a seven-day festival from our purse. There will be Latin celebrations. There will be Greek celebrations. Go to this theater. Go to that theater. Go to the Colosseum. It's all for free. Go and feast because out of the generosity of my heart, I have provided this abundance of money for you. Why in all the world am I doing that? For the very simple reason that I wanted to have that inscription put on the entrance of the theater and everybody who walks by goes like, oh, this is the guy, wow, he contributed out of the wealth, oh, that was a great feast and whatever. It's all honor-driven, it's all honor-driven. Unfortunately, I don't have the time. You, you go one inscription, one thing, one statue after another, you see everything is done for honor and reputation and then you come to the lowest end of the ladder, you come to the slave, totally dishonored. Who wants to be a slave in the first century? Well, and then we have some very interesting fact. Let's go to the next one. Uh, this is just another, another illustration that from the first century, the Christians were proud to call themselves slaves. This is a saying, uh, this is something that only slaves say. We make it our aim, present or absent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. This is the way we have a joke in Germany. It says, how do you start a fist fight in Holland? You go to a Dutch person and you ask him, are you also German? <laughs> uh, that's especially funny in Germany because we know nobody likes us. And so <laughs> nobody wants to be a German. So, um, oh, poor guy. <laughs> that's why we go to America. In America, you introduce yourself and say, hey, I come from Germany. And the Americans, they go like, I love Germany. Um, we love the Americans because they love the Germans. Anyway, how do you start a fist fight in the first century? You go to a free person and you ask the free person, whom are you well-pleasing? Because you're implying and you're asking the question, whose slave are you? So I am well-pleasing to somebody. Is, is, you never say that. Only slaves say that. Only slaves I am pleasing, I want to be well-pleasing to, you know, Ant or Helen or whatever, it means I'm your slave. No free person is well-pleasing to somebody. Only slaves are pleasing to somebody. So here we have the interesting fact that Christians use happily, use slave terminology, apply them to themselves and says, we are the happy slaves, we are the happy slaves which is totally contradictory to the values of the culture because the culture says the very name, the very idea of slave is, is dishonorable. What's wrong with your Christian guys? It comes very important, one very important, interesting fact. It tells a lot about our relationship we have with the Lord. I'll finish with that in a second. Next one, please. Uh, these, are more, these are more texts that show that Christians call themselves with joy slave. Next one. The apostles started, or the apostles are go as big examples uh, ahead of it. 
In the first century, uh, when you give somebody a business card, you always put the, your most important title in the front. And then you add the other titles. So you first come up with, I have my master from Rockhurst, I have my bachelor from London Theology, and then third one is I have my kindergarten degree from St. Albans. <laughs> so so the, the most prominent one comes always at the beginning. And interestingly one, Paul, he doesn't say Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. But he introduces himself, puts his most important title in the front, and says, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. And you go like, couldn't you sort of hide that dishonorable aspect of yours? Just put your honorable you know, degrees right in front. No, he says, the most proud I am is that I'm a slave of Christ. And the question is still, why in the world is that? Apart from that, the fact that you already answered it. Next one, I will show you on the picture. The picture is here. This is a tombstone of Morainiane Pantonaika. I'm probably messing it up already. It's supposed to be Greek. And anyway, it is a wealthy aristocratic family from Thessaloniki. It's a free person. It's an aristocrat, which means top level. Now, there will be a big surprise when you look at the next tombstone. Same size, has a has an inscription, Sumferon and Nilus lay buried here. Sumferon and Nilus are slave names. Slaves built themselves a tomb of the same size as this big wealthy aristocratic family. That already speaks interesting volumes about slavery in the first century. And it just breaks our imagination. But here comes the most important thing. In very, typic very typical grave inscriptions of slaves are, and I'll give you just an example, Sumferon or Nilus, slaves of, then there's the name of the owner, lay buried here. And uh, uh, social researchers have seen that and have been, been puzzling over the question why in the first century slaves are proudly advertising on their tombstones that they have been slaves. Because you, on tombstones you can write whatever you want to. You can write don't pee on this tombstone. <laughs> Seriously, people do that. Actually, it's a little bit more, it's the other side what comes out. That's even then. <laughs> uh, I have been a farm worker. Or people proudly advertise their professions. They say, I've been a shoemaker. Or people say, you know, they write funny things and say, you know, uh, I don't know, eternity I greet you or something like that. But why in all the world and social researchers have been puzzled by the question, are slaves advertising knowing that to be known as a slave is a social di uh, 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 disadvantage? Why are they advertising? And that's the answer to what you said. The answer lies on the name of the person who's put in here. Because if that has been a prominent, wealthy, aristocratic family, your social dignity of a slave rises with the person you are a slave of. So I'll give you, give you an example. Somebody knocks at, the, uh, knocks at your door. You live in the first century. Some of you knocks at the door and you ask from your bed, who is it? And the guy answers a slave. You stay in bed. Then you come to the thought, maybe you ask who was the sender of the slave. And you shout to the guy, who sent you? Who is your owner? And the slave goes, Augustus Nero. 
you get up very quickly. Because the slave who is associated with the emperor has a social dignity simply because he is associated with the emperor that goes over the top and over the roof to all the relatives that you have in your family and that you know. You quickly get up and ask the guy what he wants. And so the idea is people, and this is what social researchers, this is the explanation they give. They say, interesting fact is slaves proudly advertise they have been slaves, put in their master on the slave description because they love the association with their master. They are so proud or so fond of their master that the association with their master becomes so important in their lives that the social dis-dignity, I know that's not an English word, but it doesn't matter, that, that the social disadvantage weighs less, is less, of less importance than their appreciation to belong to somebody glorious, famous, or wonderful. This is the answer. Maybe I'll leave you home. Maybe you have some questions, but I'll leave you home with this last sentence. Because it says something about who our Lord is. In the first century, Christians were proudly, the idea of slave of was transformed into a batch of dignity. Christians were introducing each other and were saying hello, even though you were a free man. You were a free man. You would never come of the idea of saying anything slaverish to anybody. You are a free man. You introduce yourself to your brother and sister and you say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And it becomes a term of dignity because you want to be associated with that Jesus Christ. You want to be known as the one belonging to because you have tasted and appreciated something, what that one that you're belonging to is. And you're so proud and you're so grateful of the one that you belong to that you proudly advertise that you are his slave. Hmm. Can I, can I yes, of course. Uh, the price for uh, asking for a slave yeah. is something Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a theme. That's, it's a, exactly that theme comes up in the New Testament, comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You were bought with a price. It means you're a slave. There's been a price being paid. And I think First Peter says you were ransomed not with silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Somebody had paid a high price. By the way, to rescue you from another slavery, the New Testament describes the transferal of ownership. You remember transferal of ownership in the symbolized in the baptism of Matthew 28? It's not from you being a free person transferred into being a slave. The transfer is a transfer from being a slave of somebody really cruel, namely sin and death into the ownership of Jesus Christ. And that's why people are proud of. The theology of the first century is, you, every human being, by the way, is a slave. The question is, who is your master? And Christians realize, unless you are a slave of Jesus Christ, you have another master. And you are owned by two masters. That's also very common in the, in, in the New Testament. We have that even in Acts chapter 16. We have the slave girl who prophesies. Paul got so upset with her, he drove the demon out of her and she couldn't prophesy anymore. And then it says her masters, in the plural, were upset because now they didn't have the prophet anymore. She couldn't, she couldn't prophesy anymore. She couldn't, I mean, in a negatively sense. She had information from demons. People were going like, wow, paying big money. To the owners, of course. And the owners, in the plural... It's sort of a, a, a co 
co-ownership because you know by the way why is uh, 30 seconds why do you think the girl had two, had two owners she was so expensive she's bringing in a lot of money which means she cost a lot of money in the first place two people put money together says okay we'll buy together share the profits her owners in the plural uh, were so upset so so this is the same thing that happens here in the new testament Every human being has a master. It's either Jesus Christ or it's a double ownership of sin and death. And what you fear in the first century, you fear being sold to a cruel master because that person whips you, crucifies you, mistreats you. And the idea is there has been a wonderful transfer of ownership from sin and death. That's, that's the direct words of Paul in uh, Romans chapter 7. Who will rescue me from being a slave belonging to death? And it says, thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord means the master, the new master. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done the rescue. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we go home tonight with a privilege of being called slaves of Jesus Christ. And we are happily saying to you, Lord Jesus, you are our Lord. Because like the Christians in the first century, we have tasted about something of your worth, of your value, of the great treasure that you are, of the costly price that you paid, and we gladly are associated with you as your slaves and you being our wonderful master. Amen and amen. Maybe can I, can I say one more, one, more, one more thing? Just This is not for all of you, maybe for one or two people. If some of you, so someone had been here in the sermon this morning, he, you have heard how I became a Christian. And um, after I gave my life to Jesus in my own bedroom, um, through in some accident, two weeks later, I happened to bump into a church. And on the Sunday service, the preacher was preaching a message and he was asking, what do you want people to write on your tombstone? Do you want people to write on your tombstone, this person died of something, or this person died for something? Because if on your tombstone is only written, he died of cancer, this is a sad thing. But if on this tombstone there is a great, there is a great vision that you lived for, there is a great purpose that you pursued, your life, makes a difference and your life is something worth and value and wasn't just an accident of time. And then that preacher at the end of the sermon said, if you want eventually somebody to write on your tombstone, this man died for, and then put in whatever you want to put in, then come forward for prayer. And then I as a young man, I knelt down in the front and I said to the pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, I know what I want to live for. It's not a thing, 
It's not the plan. It's the person. It's Jesus Christ. I want to live for Jesus. And I just want to give the invitation because sometimes in a group like this, somebody has never asked the question, what do I actually live for? And if you want to make a decision tonight, if you are here and you want to say, I want to, I've heard in the morning who Jesus Christ is, I've tasted a little bit, I don't want to just live and, and die and then that's it. But I want to have eternal life and live for some grand purpose that God has made me for. Come to me and I would love to pray with you. Thank you very much for your attention. You are a wonderful family, church family. God bless you.